All right, having our word in front of us, let us open to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be finishing out this chapter this morning. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul addressed a particular sin that needed to be handled and dealt with properly amongst the Corinthians. He handled this sin of sexual immorality that was being tolerated, uh, perhaps even arrogantly uh, boasted of among the Corinthians. And it is interesting to me that through the rest of this chapter, uh, the real focus shifts from the individual and onto the church's responsibility in dealing with the sin. In fact, the majority of the time that Paul spends addressing this specific sin, he's focusing more on the church's failure to handle it than he is on the person's individual iniquity. The issue that is truly at hand in this chapter is holiness. What does it mean to be holy unto God? If you are set apart, which is what the word holiness means, is it possible to love those that you are set apart from? These questions will find clarity today in, five, in the five verses that we're going to be studying in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And so if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to read verses 9 through to the end of the chapter, and then I will pray and we will pursue a greater understanding of these verses. Apostle Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Would you bow with me as we ask the Lord's blessing over our learning this morning? Holy One, we thank you for being the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Israel, the God of Paul, the God of the church. You are the one and only God and there is none who can rival you. And so, God, tell us what we need to hear. We understand, God, that as Paul the Apostle was the vessel through which you brought us these words, truly they do not belong to him. They are your words, that you have God breathed them so that we might hear them and have a picture of what you desire for us, your church. And so help your people to feast upon this bounty that you have provided, Lord God. I pray that we would be nourished by the true nutrients of the word. I pray, Lord God, that we would be humbled by the things that it reveals in us that need to change. Help us, Lord God, to be ever-increasing in sanctity and holiness that our lives might match the righteousness that you have imputed to us through Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name and to his glory. Amen. So we see right away in this passage that Paul intends to correct a misconception from an earlier correspondence that they had shared with him. Now, I want us to remember here that Paul and the Corinthian church they had a long-standing relationship. Paul had helped to found the church, heading to Corinth shortly after the time that he spent preaching in Athens. Paul was able to stay at Corinth for about a year and a half, 
at its beginning, at its inception, during that time, he preached without a doubt. He trained up leaders. He helped them to become established in right doctrine. And that's a long time for Paul to stay in one place. Paul was a man of church planting, and he often went from place to place and region to region for a year and a half. It's a long time. And though he has since moved on to help start other churches, the Corinthian church has remained upon his heart. The New Testament contains two letters that Paul wrote to this church, but there were other written conversations that Paul refers to that do not remain in the biblical record. If you grabbed a note sheet, there is a small uh, outline of those correspondences there in a, in, a, in a minor chart. We see there that Paul's first letter was written to them uh, prior to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5.9 refers to that letter. And then there was a letter from the Corinthian church to Paul, a correspondence in which they asked him some questions, perhaps sought some clarification. That's referred to in 1 Corinthians 7.1. And then we have what is called the 1 Corinthian letter, the one that we are studying in depth verse by verse through this season. Uh, after this letter came a letter that had a tone of severity. It's sometimes called the severe letter. And that is referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, and then again in verse 8 of chapter 7 of that letter. And then finally, there is the letter that we do call 2 Corinthians that we have in the canon. Now, in God's providence, the church has only been given two of what is at least five pieces of written correspondence that is mentioned between Paul and the church here. So here Paul is referring to an earlier letter. Verse 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, we don't have this letter. And so we know very little about this letter's contents. But have confidence, church. If we needed that letter, God would have provided it for us. He would have preserved it. He would have canonized it. There is no critical wisdom that we have been deprived of simply because there are other things that were said between Paul and the Corinthians that we don't have access to anymore. While God has afforded His creation a will of their own. It is not an entirely free will, but it is a will that can decide to obey or disobey Him. And though God has provided for them the ability to make choices for which they are held accountable, at the same time, we realize that man's will can ultimately never triumph over the will of God. God will make sure that everything that happens fits into His comprehensive plan for all that He has made. When you believe in the sovereignty of God, it significantly changes the way that you understand history and the forensic way that you approach your study of biblical revelation. If God is sovereign, meaning if He is all-powerful and if no one can stop Him from accomplishing the things that He desires to accomplish, then nothing that man can do has the potential to stop His will, right? Nothing man can do can prevail against the church because the church is God's plan. Amen. Think about that for a minute, church. That means that the very attempt to mitigate the truth will have only collateral damage, temporary damage at best. But every effort of man to distort God's word or to conceal him or to cover up what he has declared, none of those attempts can ever in any lasting and definitive way, keep the will of God from prevailing again, over, over wickedness and deceit. When the wickedness of the, of the kings of Judah, remember that, that at a certain point after Solomon's rule in Israel, 
the northern kingdom of Israel split from the southern kingdom of Judah. And if we continue to read on in the record of the kings, whether, whether we're reading in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, or 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, we read of a long line of, of terribly wicked kings in Judah, some of whom desired to destroy the revelation of God. Some of those kings, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, tried to abolish the scrolls that told the people of Israel just what their covenant was supposed to look like with God. Eventually, those wicked kings met their demise. And if you read in 1 Kings 22, you will see how God ordained that a young boy named Josiah would take the throne. And with guidance from relatives, he began to do a, a better job than those grown men had done. Josiah still had a reverence for the things of the Lord. And when he saw that the temple of God was in disrepair and that worship was not occurring as it should, he sent the priests, the Levites, in to clean the temple. And as they were cleaning the temple and restoring decency and respect to God's holy place, they found within it a hidden scroll that contained the five first books of the Old Testament. And so that scroll, though those wicked kings thought they had abolished the word of God, that scroll, and likely others, had survived so that the testimony of God's covenant with his people would endure. And so Josiah, in an act of humility, called together all of the nation. And he had those priests read out and declare to the people, this is who you are in God. This is who we should have been this whole time. Let us repent and fast and seek the Lord again. God is sovereign, friends. The wicked men had tried to kill the word of God and hinder his will. They could not succeed against it. The fact that God is sovereign plays a big part in our understanding of this book that we study today. It is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. That doesn't mean that somebody looked at God and said, wow, that makes me want to write great and wonderful things. And so then they use their creativity to try to reflect God. No, when the word says that scripture is God breathed in 2 Timothy 3, it means that literally through men, God communicated his message word for word to his people so that they would write it down so that it would be preserved. That it is sufficient to equip the saints in wisdom to direct our worship of God so that it might be pure and holy. We are not lacking any revelation that keeps us from being the church that God ordained us to be. And this word of God will endure forever. People can try to keep it out of our schools. It will continue to witness to God's perfect will. They can try to keep it out of Hollywood. Have you ever noticed that no one ever prays in Jesus' name in the movies? Even when there's a pastor portrayed in Hollywood, they'll always pray, but they'll never pray in the name of Jesus. That's because great efforts have been made to keep the name of Jesus out of Hollywood. That doesn't have to worry us, friends. It's not Hollywood's job to proclaim the gospel anyway. It is our job to proclaim the gospel. Don't worry about it too much. God is sovereign, and he will not allow the true message of the word to be obscured in such a way that God's will might not be accomplished. You might ask, but how do we know that the Bible that we have hasn't been corrupted over time? And to that, I'll simply respond with words from that very same Bible. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, 
but the Lord establishes his steps. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You might be encouraged to know that our youth group throughout this year is memorizing verses that will point to the sovereignty of God and help them become grounded in this reality, this truth, that nothing can stop the will of God because He is all-powerful. Because we know that, because we know that God is good and perfect and pure and no one can stop Him, that settles it. If God is not sovereign, you have everything to worry about, don't you? The part that you play in the and the way of history as it unfolds is dramatically different in your mind and in your heart if you don't believe in a sovereign God. If God's will can be hindered, then all can still be lost. Failure is an option. But if the God who created all things and is mightier than all things is indeed sovereign, then we have incredible confidence that he will overcome every obstacle in the way of his church. If God isn't sovereign, then we have not yet found the greatest thing. We have no idea what the greatest thing is, the ideal is. But because God is sovereign, we know what the greatest thing is. The greatest thing is Father, Son, and Spirit, friends. It's the triune God that we worship here today. If God cannot determine our outcomes, then God is fallible. He is simply waiting to see what will occur in the future, like man must. But that is not the God that we praise and worship today. He is not hoping. God is not there wringing His hands with a desire for what he wants the future to look like, but no real certainty that it will occur. No, this God that we worship is greater than that, friends. He is sovereign. One of our greatest comforts is knowing that when Psalm 2 asks, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain, that we can go down a couple more verses to verse 4 in Psalm 2 and read, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In other words, every attempt to thwart his power is a joke to God. He will not be stopped. So no, friends, we don't have all the Corinthian letters. And that is by God's design. We do not have to fret over that. We don't need anything that God has not given to us. But they are mentioned here. And so we can spend a moment meditating on their reference. We do know that the initial letter contained an admonition, similar to the one that we've been studying here in chapter 5, but probably a little less specific and pointed. That reference was, do not associate with the sexually immoral. One of the two things, or one of two things rather, happened in response to that initial letter that we don't have. Paul wrote, do not associate with the sexually immoral, and one, either the Corinthians misunderstood him and disagreed with something that Paul wasn't actually saying. They thought that meant, whoa, you can't have any contact whatsoever with people who sin. You can't be around them at all. You can't interact with society that you live in. Perhaps they thought that's what Paul meant, and they were confused. But there's a second option there. Perhaps the Corinthians did understand Paul, but those who weren't a part of his party, remember there was great division in the church in Corinth. Some associated themselves with Apollos, others with Peter, some only cared about the writings of Jesus and others were in what they called the party of Paul. Perhaps those who weren't in the party of Paul accused him of saying something preposterous by those words in order to make other people distrust his judgment. We don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that they needed clarification. How could Christians possibly avoid the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers 
or the idolaters, especially in a place like Corinth, which was filled with sin. Those who openly violated God's commands were everywhere. So how could Paul expect the Corinthians to not have any interaction with them? Is the holiness that God desires for his people possible then if the saved continue to live in a world that is filled with sinners? Were the Corinthians supposed to completely leave the sinful world in order to be pure? Though that notion sounds a little silly, some still think that's the only way for God's church to be holy and sanctified. And there have been concisive attempts made to separate out the church from the world to such a degree that they have no interaction with those who don't know Christ. History tells us of Christians who've tried to form Christian nations where the only legal expression of worship was Christianity. And that sounds ideal to keep people from error, but there are problems with that. Primarily, you cannot legislate love through human means. You cannot make people trust the living God by telling them they will go to jail if they don't. So that's not the answer to this lack of sanctity in the church. There have been attempts at monastic living. You've heard of monks and nuns who have ventured out and away from the regular rhythms of society. They have tried to build for themselves small refugee communities of believers who try to have nothing to do with the outside world and who try to immerse themselves only in the things of God. And that might be helpful some to the individual heart of the one removed from society, but they did very little worldly good to those who are lost. And when it came to communicating the gospel truth that can save the lost, how effective can you be if you are not in contact with those who need that message? There have been efforts at building Christian subcultures. We see attempts at this today. If you've ever been to San Francisco and you've seen the efforts that people have made in that small district called Chinatown to encapsulate a small sliver of China here in America. There's similar things that are done In Christianity, where there are pockets of people who try to create all the things that they need, but all of it is Christian flavor. All of it is governed by the Word. And and often that creates a, a, a great unity amongst the people, but it is not the plan that God has given to us and how we are to reach those who are lost. These are not the kinds of solutions that Paul's arguing for. Do you remember at the end of last week's sermon, how we spoke about, most of the sermon was talking about leaven and how we are to remove the sinfulness from the church so that, like leaven, it will not be allowed to permeate into the lump and cause a, a, a sinfulness to pervade the church. Rather, we are to cut clean from that sin and start new. But then we went to Matthew at the end of the service and, and made note of the fact that, that Jesus himself flips that parable a little bit or that metaphor a little bit and says that the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, can in some ways be like leaven too. That sinfulness and wickedness is not the only thing that has the power to influence. And so that as Christians, we are to bring the gospel into the world so that we might allow God's message to reach to every tribe, tongue, and nation, to be a blessing to the world as God intended it to be. In other places, Christ preaches that the church is to be like two very common items that we use every day. We are to be like salt. We are to turn people from sin and turn them to the gospel which can preserve them, which can give them joy and flavor in life. We are to have a purifying effect on the lost world that we live in. 
And we're called to be like light, aren't we, church? Though darkness abounds in the world that we live in, it is not so powerful as to completely obscure the holy things that God is accomplishing in His people. And so we, living in obedience to Jesus, should provide a contrasting hope and beauty that stands out in the culture and makes an impact upon it. Neither salt nor light can make that intended impact if they never come in contact with their subject, can they? Salt must touch meat. It must touch food. Light must come in contact with darkness to dispel it. So can we be those things? Can we be salt and light if we completely disengage from the lost world that we still live in, even if we do it for what seems like the noble purposes of purifying ourselves? The question that must be answered is how set apart are we to be? Paul's drive to take the gospel to the world, particularly to the Gentile nations, was no doubt influenced by the one who commissioned him. Turn with me to John 17. We're going to look at some of the words that Christ spoke as he prayed on behalf of his people. As Jesus' earthly ministry approached its crescendo, the Gospel of John records an extended prayer that Jesus lifted up for his people to prepare them, to direct them, and to petition for them. Let's remember what Jesus said in this prayer concerning the way that the church was to interact with the world. These words are found in John 17, verses 13 through 19. But now I am coming to you, Jesus prayed to the Father. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Paul's call for purity and holiness was never meant to render us irrelevant to an unsaved world. If Paul was saying that we need to cut ourselves off from any, in any interaction with the immoral, with the greedy, with the sinners of society then he would have been working against what Jesus taught us in this very prayer. We know that's not the case, that Paul's ministry was always ever to exalt Christ. And so looking at what Jesus preached, or prayed there rather, in verse 14, we see that those who follow Jesus are not of this world. The transformation that has been brought about in our lives has made us aliens to this place. If you trust in Jesus and he is your Lord and Savior, then you don't rightfully belong here anymore. Your new identity makes you different. The spiritual life that has replaced your spiritual deadness makes you stand out as a foreign alien in this land. And it's going to cause you to some degree to be hated because you're not just like everybody else who does not count Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So that's what verse 14 teaches us. And then we go into verse 15. It is not Jesus' desire that we be taken out of the world 
He makes that very clear here. And so the goals of God's people must be greater than escape. We cannot be content to simply keep ourselves pure. That's not the mission we have been set upon. Instead, Jesus asks the Father to protect them from the sifting of the evil one. Keep them from the devil. Jesus doesn't need to pull you into heaven in order to protect you well from Satan. He can protect you from the enemy here on earth. His power extends to all creation. And so he can preserve you here where you are, even as you live amidst an unclean people. When is a soldier in the army safest? Well, that's pretty easy. A soldier is safest if he never sees combat, if his number is never called. But part of what makes him a soldier is his willingness to heed the call when it comes. In fact, he cannot be a soldier if he refuses to put himself into the danger of the battlefield, even though that would be less safe for him to do so. The true soldier's goal cannot be to avoid conflict entirely, but to be a good soldier, he must train to avoid the damages that conflict can bring. So he has to use how to use his gear properly. He has to learn how to look two steps ahead to avoid pitfalls and foolishness. He must learn to trust his fellow soldiers. He's got to learn to follow protocols and to believe in the training that he has been given. He doesn't avoid the conflict, but he does everything he can to avoid the damages that can, ex that can happen within that conflict. Of course, our warfare as Christians is not carnal. It is spiritual, isn't it? And John 17, 18 tells us that we are now functioning as ones who are sent out into this combat, into this conflict. Jesus was sent into the world to change the lives of sinners, and now he sends us to share the good news of that transformational salvation. That's not going to work if we isolate ourselves from the world. We won't be able to participate in what we have been called. So those sent into the world, we are to consider ourselves consecrated for the holy work that God has commanded us to take part in. And it's interesting, if you look at the last verse of that passage in John 17 that I read a minute ago, Jesus says, I consecrate myself. And then he goes on to say that how we are being sanctified. And the word for consecrate and sanctify is the exact same word, exact same verb. Now, Jesus doesn't need to be made holy as we do, but he keeps himself consecrated and set apart and then he works in the lives and the hearts of believers like us to help us be consecrated though we are in the midst of a sinful place. A consecrated thing stands in contrast to a common thing, but it also has the power to stand among that which is common. So those who belong to God are consecrated and set apart, and it should be obvious how. We are consecrated in our view of truth. We don't embrace this foolish idea that is so prevalent in the world that truth is relevant person to person, that your truth might be different than my truth and that I've got to live my truth. That isn't truth. We are Christians and so we believe that there is one truth and that truth comes from a sovereign God who alone is able to ensure us that his will will be done. So our view of truth, uh, truth is radically different than the view of truth that is floating around in our society today. Our attitude towards sex should be very different. We should not be a licentious people. Look at the Corinthians situation. This man who is being put out from the people who has been turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh was being 
called to do so because his, his behavior matched the worldly church, or rather the worldly world, rather than the church it should have matched. In fact, his sinfulness was so sinful it didn't even match the world. The world wasn't even participating in that kind of gross immorality. And so our attitude as the church towards sex should be very different. We should have a, a holy reverence for sex, that it is a beautiful gift that God has given to his people to be enjoyed in, under the covenant guidelines of marriage. Our attitudes towards earthly wealth should be different. We should not pursue the things of the world with the kind of greed and single-minded focus that our competitors do. The rest of the world is driven to fill their bank accounts up and to get every dime and every penny. And we as Christians should not be so fascinated by wealth and by extreme luxury. We as believers should hold our wealth in a loose hand that God might take and use it however he sees fit. So our attitudes towards wealth should be different. Our attitudes towards political unrest should be different. And there's no shortage of that around us right now, church. Because we know that God is sovereign, we may suffer a bit more because of the circumstances that are unfolding around us, but all of man's failures serve to prove that the God of Abraham never fails, that his promises will be kept, and we know that no matter who sits in the Oval Office. Our attitude towards death should be different. Right now, the world trembles at the thought that they might get sick. We are wise about the virus, but we are not terrified of it, church. As if this sickness is the thing that is sovereign over us, it is not. God is the only omnipotent one. He is the final word, not the CDC, not the politicians that try to push an agenda upon us, not our own reasonable, independent brains. No, the one who is omnipotent is God himself. Jesus is our Lord. We are salt and light when we resolve against sickness and death. We resolve in such a way that it reflects our trust in Him. So the key to our remaining, whole, uh, remaining holy is not retreat, is not cutting ourselves off from the world, it is consecration. It is walking in the holiness that Jesus prays for His church. Jesus clarified in John 17 that He wasn't praying just for the 12 disciples, but He was praying for all those who would one day trust in Him. So He was praying specifically for us as well, the very same prayer of consecration. Now let us return our thoughts to Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 5. One of the keys to understanding the degree to which we must be set apart and consecrated is our understanding of a specific term. That term is associate. How do we associate with the lost world? We see it in verse 9. And I'm going to try to pronounce this in the Greek. It's a complicated word. Sunana mignustai is the Greek word or associate, and literally what this word means is to become mixed up together with something else. This word implies a blending. It implies a blurring of borders. This does not mean that we cannot know those who do not believe in our Savior. It does not mean that we cannot occupy the same spaces and communities as them. When it comes to our identity, we are not to mix who we fundamentally are with those who are fundamentally alienated and hostile to our God. The Apostle John was concerned with our consecration as well as Paul is here. Uh, he wrote some very helpful directions about this consecration in his first letter. 1 John 1, 5-7 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light 
and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Do you see the connection here between the words associate and fellowship? We have fellowship with the Son of God. Do you see the beauty and the wonder in that gift? That we now can become mingled with the things of truth that he has given to us, that we can love what he loves, that we can reject what he rejects. We have fellowship with God above. And because of that new fellowship, we cannot have the same kind of fellowship with the world that we used to be so familiar and comfortable with. We cannot mix with the world in such a way that who they are now becomes a prime influence in who we are. We cannot allow their values and the things that they stand for, which are ever-changing and in conflict with each other, we cannot allow those things to permeate our hearts and minds. We must stand in truth, enjoying a fellowship that has been won for us by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. If we say that we're mixed up with Jesus, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, but our actions are showing that we are actually mixed up with the lost world, then something is not right. The believer is sick, if that is the case. And it's a sickness far more treacherous than the coronavirus could ever be. In order to be like light, we have to be willing to enter into the places where darkness dwells. But our light, which is more accurately the light of Christ, which has come to dwell in us, that light will by its very nature repel darkness. We cannot be casually attempting or accepting, rather, darkness into ourselves, knowing that we belong to the light now. So do not be mixed up together with those who embrace sin. It's not just a casual interaction, but an intermingling of responsibilities and value with the lost world that is being prohibited here. The identities of those in the world is wrapped up in their sins. The sexually immoral, the greedy, those who are obsessed with dishonest gain, those who worship false idols. And we are going to speak about that to a great degree when we get into chapter 6. If I am a professing believer, my life says something about the God that I claim to worship and follow. If I am disobedient to that God, the message that I send, the thing that I'm saying with my actions, is that my God has no true authority over me. The lost world is not familiar with my God. So if I act in a way that isn't consistent with true faith, I am presenting a distortion of the faith that I claim to profess. I am acting as a false teacher. I am behaving as an antichrist. Is that the role that we want to play, church? The importance of that distinction is why Paul is adamant that the Corinthian church return to practicing biblical discipline among its members. So it is useful here to point out a distinction in the way that we may or may not associate with those who have allowed their hearts to mix with the sin that is so acceptable to the world but is so unacceptable to our Savior. There will be some who seem to be a part of us, but when confronted with ongoing sin in their lives, the, the weight 
of the reality of, of dying to themselves and taking up their cross daily, the weight of following Jesus in truth, if it becomes too much for them to bear, and rather than rejecting their sin, they reject Jesus, then they turn away and say, okay, well, I guess I'm not a believer then. There is and should be a great sadness when that happens for people among us. People who say, yeah, I don't think I really am a believer in Jesus. I, maybe I was in the church for a long time, but that's not who I am today. We should mourn that rejection. We continue to pray for a changed heart in that individual. A person who no longer professes faith in Jesus has ceased to represent God. That means they are aware of their peril and conversations between them and the church take on a different nature. With the misrepresentation of Jesus eliminated, they're no longer professing that Christ is their king. We can treat that individual as they are, as a non-believer who is in need of grace. We treat them as one outside of the covenant. We reach out to them. We show generosity and kindness to them without hostility. We do not love their rejection of Jesus. In fact, we consistently warn them of the danger of that choice, but we continue to love and value the person, for they are still made in the image of God, and God can and may one day cause their heart to repent. But because they are not in Christ, we cannot mix with them now in the same way that we would with a brother or a sister in Christ. We cannot covenant with them in marriage. We cannot allow them to serve in our church. We should be careful about entering into any sort of a business contract with them because they don't operate upon the same standards that we do. We evangelize and we do so without the burden of needing to correct their sins if we see sin in their life. Now, it's never wrong to point out that sin is wrong, but we're going to see here in just a second that Paul makes it clear to the church in Corinth that our judgment really should focus on those who are inside of the covenant. When you're dealing with people who are outside of the covenant, you need to have a, a sense of reality here. The heart must change for any meaningful change in sinful behavior to be possible. So if you are expecting a non-believer who is trusting not in Jesus, but in their own power and their own wisdom, if you expect them to suddenly become holy because you can point out the damage of sin and the difficulty of it, then don't hold your breath. Without the power of Christ, any victory we have over sin is temporary at best. You can't really hope to overcome a sinner's sin if that sinner is not surrendered to the Savior. So don't focus so much on their covenant violations. Focus on their status as a violator of the covenant. Urge them in all ways and through every opportunity towards faith in Jesus Christ. Remind them that He acts as Lord to those whom He saves. So we've thought now about how to treat someone who formerly professed they were a Christian, then confronted with their sin, they chose the sin over Christ, and they no longer bear the name of believer. But what are the implications of staying connected to those who say they believe, but they act as though they do not? Someone such as this man in Corinth who had married his father's wife, he's committing incest, and he's confronted with the sin and he says, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I'm going to continue to worship the Lord and I'm going to keep my wife, even though that's a complete violation of the this, this scriptures. What do we do with a person like that? When people profess Jesus but live in unchecked sin, their behavior acts as a corruption to the name of our Holy Savior. They are attempting to mix sanctification and sin together in the same pot. 
The church is assaulted by that evil action. In the body of Christ, God's church becomes sick when that is allowed. Paul's going to address a specific example of that in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, where believers were taking the Lord's table with contempt. They were not being pure in the way they were administering the bread and the wine. And so some were becoming sick among them. Even some were dying of this sin. So we're going to get to that in chapter 11. So Paul, in in the consistent instruction of the Bible, forbids this kind of lax attitude towards sin among those who claim the name of Jesus. A believer repents of sin. They don't nurture it and make room for it in their lives. They repent of it and they turn from it. And if they refuse to do so, if they refuse to repent, then they cannot be allowed to act as though they are connected to the body while intentionally cutting themselves off from the head of that body who is Jesus Christ. Now let's broaden the scope of our understanding about this. Paul gives us some additional instruction in the Thessalonian letters about how to deal with somebody who is living in sin but professes Christ. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9-12 through 12 says this. Let's think about these words. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, we're all dependent on Christ, so that's not the point of the passage there. He is addressing a particular sin that was beginning to pop up and create conflict and friction within the Thessalonian believers. The Thessalonian letters, interestingly enough, were written just shortly before the Corinthian correspondence. So this was probably recently on Paul's mind as he writes to those in Corinth who are experiencing this difficulty in church discipline. He tells the Thessalonians, you know, you love one another as God has taught you. In other words, good job. You're doing great in that regard. But Paul has to urge the Thessalonians on a couple of things. He tells them to live quietly. Now, that probably indicates that they were chattering about each other, that there was some gossip going on or grumbling about brothers and sisters, probably because this next sin that's going to be mentioned was not being dealt with properly. It says, mind your own affairs and work with your hands as was instructed to you. So apparently in the Thessalonian congregation, hearing that Jesus was going to return and establish his kingdom, some took that so literally and so immediately that they quit their jobs, that they stopped working, that rather than go to earn a living, to put bread on the table, instead they just wanted to spend their day rejoicing that this Christ that they had come to worship was going to come back for them soon. And when they needed something, they just went to the other Christians and asked for blessings and asked for handouts and asked for them to be generous. And so they were living in faith, but they were not living in diligence and responsibility. And they were becoming a burden on the others who were in the church. We know the story of Mary and Martha as Jesus came and these two sisters who share a house together invited him in and Martha is busy preparing the home for their guests and getting the beds ready and probably putting the food together and she's frustrated because Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus and uh, listening to his teaching and Jesus says, no, 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 Martha. Mary has chosen the greater thing. Don't think that Mary should stop what she's doing and go and run and do all this busy work when there is time to be had with Christ. But I'm sure there was a point at which Jesus stopped teaching, and Mary did get up and go to help with the preparation. We still live in a world where there is work to be done. There's practical things that must be 
be handled by Christians. We've got to be responsible about, about these things. So Paul is speaking to the Thessalonian church and urges them to be responsible about their ability to work and to provide for themselves. So he continues the conversation in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. He says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. So these ones who were idle, these ones who would not work because they just thought Jesus has come back anyway, why should I have a job? He's saying, admonish them, tell them they are wrong, call their sin to attention, urge them to repent, but then also be patient with them. If they are weak in this, perhaps they've got a misconception about this. Maybe they mean really well, but they just don't understand the full scope of what Christ has revealed through the apostles and the prophets. Then help those weak ones. Encourage them to grow in their understanding that labor is not necessarily a bad thing. That we are loving our brothers when we don't let ourselves become a burden to them if it's in our power to do so. Be patient with them in a way to change. And then if you go to the second letter written to the Thessalonians, he touches on this again. He says in verse 13 of chapter 3, he says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, Take note of that person and have nothing to do with them so that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Have nothing to do with him. You know what that word is there? It is that same Greek word that means do not mix together with them. It is the same word that we see in 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verse 9. There comes a point when a person's laziness is clearly more than a minor issue that they are working on. If someone remains in a sin, take note of them, Paul urges the, the Thessalonians. The congregational nature of church discipline is that we deal with it together as a church. Take note of them. We don't have great motivation to keep everybody's sins quiet. We want to work on them together. We have discretion. We're not trying to gossip about each other, but if there is a persistent sin that is not repented of, there are times when it needs to come before the body. Take note of that one. Have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. If someone remains in their sin, we must avoid the close kind of fellowship that would cause their attitudes and sinfulness to rub off upon us. And so this break of fellowship here comes with a teaching regarding the church's attitude towards the sinners who are lazy and putting a financial strain on the other members. Do not regard them as an enemy, Paul says, but warn them as a brother. And that is the hope there. The hope is that they are still brothers. Remember that Paul said, turn this man over to Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh. That's not the end. The destruction of the flesh that would lead to what? Hopefully the salvation of his soul. We want to call him brother. We want him to be in the fellowship. But if he is harboring sin in his life and saying that it's okay, we cannot mix with him in a way that we will begin to act as he act. Warn him as a brother. We warn him through that breaking of fellowship. We warn them by no longer acting as though they are part of the family. You don't ignore them entirely, but you ignore their attempt to act as though everything is okay. If they profess Christ but are walking in sin, then casual fellowship cannot be an option with them. That means you can't just sit down and eat a meal with them like nothing is wrong. You can't just go to a ball game and hang out with them. If they're 
proclaiming Christ and living in sin, then your conversation needs to be about the disgrace they are causing your Savior. We can't just casually text with them all the time. Can't do that. We've got to be using those opportunities of contact to point that brother or sister back to what they truly need, which is not you. It would be nice for them to have fellowship with you, but what they truly need is Christ. They need a repentant heart. They need to be right with Christ. If I had a close friend who professed Christ, but who left his wife, let's say, to mess around with a girl on the side, do you think I would be okay with having him over to watch the game and hang out with me? Absolutely not. What message would that send to his wife, who is at home grieving over the brokenness of her family? I would be condoning that man who claims to be a Christian's sin. My break in fellowship with him shows his wife that I love her. It shows his wife that I love him enough to be clear that what he is doing is sinful to his family and to his God. My break in fellowship with a professing sinner shows that I understand that God is the most important offended party in these exchanges. Any connection maintained from that point on must include an urgent call to repent. So insofar as it concerns a person who professes Christ, these, these four, four guiding marks should help us to understand how to behave. They all start with A, so you can remember them a little better. First thing we do, we alert the sinner. We bring it to their attention. As Matthew 18 teaches us, we go one-on-one to that believer and we alert them of their sin. We show them how it is dangerous for them to live in sin. And then we admonish the sin. We urge them to a repentance. Admonishment means you, you desire a change in that person. You communicate to that. The urgency to repent and to return to the Lord. And then we await repentance prayerfully. We must give them time to respond. Although there are instances when that time may be very, very short, very, very brief. You cannot at times harbor a violent sinner in your congregation or one who has broken the law. You cannot be a refuge for them in your church. But generally, we alert the sinner, we admonish the sin, we await repentance prayerfully. And then if they refuse to repent, we avoid mixing together with them. We avoid allowing that person's wickedness to rub off upon the church and to soil the name of Christ. Our responsibility to this has limits. Verses 12 through 13, we can just go through this briefly, describe those limits. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not inside, those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. There are two camps mentioned here, the outsider and the insider. That is what we have been driving at as we've discussed how we deal with those two different parties. Those who are outside are those who no longer profess Christ. They are treated as a non-believer. We are evangelistic towards them. We urge them towards the gospel. But we no longer have to address their specific sin because they are not among us. They are not part of our body. Verse 12, Paul asks, For what have I, and he could have said, For what have we to do with judging outsiders? So we don't have the jurisdiction at this point to render judgments to those who are not in the covenant of redemption with God. God judges those who are outside. He is doing it currently. He is letting the consequences of sin show a person that what they are doing is foolish. That's in, in some regards when it says to turn that man over to Satan. He's saying let him experience the consequences of the sin. And God can use that to wake a person up, to make them repentance. 
But God also has an ultimate judgment that is still in the future, a judgment in which the church will actually participate as jury, affirming the laws that their Lord commands and holds dear. But it's not time for us to be in that portion of judgment right now. The Lord judges those outside of the church. Verse 13, believers are responsible for the very specific duty of judging those who are inside of the church. Our judgment needs to focus on those within the body, those who are assigned to our jurisdiction because they're in covenant with us in Christ. And this is done according to the, God, to the word of God and it is done with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We're getting long in time. I've got a few more things I could share with you, but what I want to end with is this. Paul wants to make it very clear that his intention is not to create a little pocket of Christianity that never spills over its virtue and its love for truth into the lives of the lost people around it. And as Christians, we need to take that to heart. We need to remember that there is a holiness that we strive for within our ranks. That as Christians, as a family, that we want this body we're all a part of, we want it healthy, we want it purified of sin. But think about your life and think about the connections that you may or may not have with those who are outside of these four walls. Do you have a kind of love for those who are made in the image of God but are not upholding the law of God right now? Do you have a kind of love for them that you are willing to go into where they are and connect with them, not so that they might mix with you, but so that you might be the leaven of the gospel to them? Who in your life right now have you ventured out to just as Christ left the comforts of heaven to be with us in this sinful and broken world, who are you trying to connect to in this world that God might use you to be a preserving salt in their life? And in what ways are you determined to be not just preserving salt and a blessing to them, but to be light to that person whose eyes are shrouded in darkness? Friends, evangelism it's not just a command for missionaries, though we pray for them almost every Sunday when we take up our offering. It is not the call only for ordained pastors. It is for those who love people. It is for those who would like to see the family of God be bigger. It is for those who want to be a part of the work that God has called His church to and has consecrated so that they might be effective in this work. So think about who you know, who is lost. And if there is no one on that list, or if that list is very short, I want you in humility to repent of that. I want you in humility to ask the Lord to put upon your heart two, three, four people who are near enough to you that you could begin to extend that bridge of contact with. Again, not so that you might pretend that you're brother and sister with them, but so that you might show them that they can become your brother or your sister through the blood of Jesus Christ. May his name continue to be exalted in our holiness and may that holiness spill out onto the people whom he has yet to bring into the fold, yet he has set aside for his glory. Let's close with a word of prayer. God, we thank you that others in our lives cared enough about us in our lostness to preach the truth to us that they cared enough about your holiness, that they were determined to live lives that were set, set apart for you and looked different from the world. Thank you that by the working of your Holy Spirit, you brought to our attention for the first time the realization that Christians are different than the rest of the world. 
And that that difference doesn't come from their efforts or their religiosity, Lord, but rather it comes from your work in their lives. And so we pray for a great consecration to happen among us. We pray, Lord God, that you would make us more like Jesus, that we might rejoice in the holiness that you are bringing about in us and in the imputed righteousness that is our gift in Christ. I pray, Father God, for the names on the lists that we have mentally made today in the midst of this sermon of people that we know who are not yet a part of this covenant, but who would really benefit from being near to you. May we, God, be used by you in mighty ways to do the work of gospel work, to be mission-minded, and to spread the good news that those who are in darkness do not have to remain there. We love you, Lord God, and praise you for this fellowship that we've experienced today. Please bless our time in Sunday school as we meet on Zoom. We're grateful for you, Lord. Please continue to give us strength and courage as we know that we are founded upon the rock of Christ. And we pray this in his perfect name. Amen.